Well, uh, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, uh, Bible app or the Bible in front of you, grab it. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter uh, 16 uh, in the New Testament, picking up our reading in verse uh, 13. Uh, if you have a pew Bible, it's uh, page 1,524. Um, as we've been going through Matthew's uh, gospel, we've been uh, looking at Jesus of Nazareth. We've been uh, hearing about his teaching, uh, reading about the miracles that he performed. And by the time that we get to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is the number one trending topic at the local Judean water well. He is uh, blowing up Facebook and Twitter feeds everywhere throughout the region. And the crowds are flocking everywhere that he goes until he moves out of Jewish lands. Because what we're going to look today is where Jesus goes up north to the region of Caesarea Philippi, away from the crowds, away from the Jewish crowds, actually at a, by a mountain cave that was known more for the worship of, of foreign gods than anything. And because of this, the Jewish crowds have thinned out. And the disciples have time to, to think and reflect on everything that they've seen and heard. And Jesus takes this teachable moment to ask them a question. We see here in Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? That being Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. A lot of New Testament scholars looking at this passage that we just read actually consider this the turning point of the gospel. So if this is your first day with us, you picked a really good day. And actually, a lot of questions are brought up uh, by this passage. You see, Jesus has been saying things that people had never heard before, doing things that they'd never seen before. And the question on everybody else's mind was, who is this guy? I mean, what do you make of him? We don't have time to, this morning to answer every question that this passage brings up, so I want us to focus on the question that Jesus actually asks. You see, in Matthew 16, we get three different perspectives on the question of Jesus' identity. And we actually need to look at all three of them, because each is going to help us answer the question for ourselves that Jesus asks. Who do you say that I am? We might call the first the popular perspective, or maybe the, the outside perspective, in verse 13, Jesus asks, how do the masses answer the question? Uh, what's the word on the street? What's the latest Gallup poll? Uh, who do the crowds, in other words, outside of Jesus' inner circle, how do people answer the question, 
Who do people say the Son of Man is? We start getting our answers in in verse 14, crowdsourcing. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist had already uh, died, but a lot of his followers are now following Jesus, and he's doing all these, like, amazing things. They're like, maybe John the Baptist came back from the dead. King Herod thought that, others thought that, but some said, no, no, this is probably Elijah. Uh, We know that Malachi spoke about Elijah somehow coming back in some way. Uh, I bet this is Elijah, and others would say, no, it's Jeremiah or, or another prophet or another prophet. You see, even though a lot of people thought, well, in Jesus, this guy's definitely some sort of prophet, a spokesman for God, and all had these positive views, uh, there wasn't really a consensus that there, the, the jury was still out about him. And today we actually find even more diverse answers to the question of Jesus' identity. Uh, Jesus has been described by modern thinkers as a charismatic faith healer, an apocalyptic prophet, even a traveling philosopher. Uh, John Dominic Crisson, a former Catholic priest, refers to him as the traveling philosopher, this radical egalitarian that was here to abolish abolish all social hierarchies, someone who didn't really have a spiritual agenda, who had more of a a social agenda. Uh, Many others uh, see Jesus as as various forms of a social reformer, someone who demonstrated uh, nonviolence and simple living and, and, and not having a lot of family ties. A feminist scholar, E.S. Fiorenza, weighs in and describes Jesus as a feminist, as someone who wished to liberate women and other marginalized groups. And yet political thinkers have also weighed in about this question. Mikhail Gorbachev, a former leader of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, said that Jesus was the first socialist. Todd Starnes from Fox News Radio says, in contradiction to that, Jesus was, is, and would be a capitalist. Meanwhile, Tom Mullen, a libertarian writer, said that Jesus was a great libertarian. You you see where I'm going here. Uh, Religious groups have also uh, tended in the same direction. To many Buddhists, including a lot of the Buddhist friends I met when I lived in North Carolina, see Jesus as an enlightened man, uh, showing us the way to enlightenment. Uh, to Muslims, he's described as their Issa, another prophet leading up to the final prophet, uh, Muhammad. And if you're Hindu, Jesus is seen as another member of the Hindu a pantheon of gods, one god amongst many to be worshipped. You might be seeing a trend here, and actually so did Alan Watts, who actually writes as a Hindu on the view of Jesus and confesses the reality that's common not only amongst religious views of Jesus, but even non-religious views of him when he says there's something about Jesus that just cannot be overlooked or dismissed, and therefore he gives this very, very honest piece of advice. He says, whatever our opinions, we must necessarily wrangle the words of Jesus to agree with them. In other words, wherever you're coming from, if you can't make Jesus somehow fit your system, you're in trouble. But the question is, why? Why can't you just say, hey, Jesus and I, we just disagree and that's okay? Why do so many different groups, causes, movements, and communities feel not only the desire, but in the words of Alan Watts, the need to claim Jesus for themselves? Maybe because in Jesus we actually see somebody who speaks to all of our human longings, making it so much easier to perceive him in so many different ways. Maybe it's not actually because Jesus is simply any one of these things that these people described, or that he's somehow all of them at the same time, but that he's actually something greater than in any of them. You see, if Jesus truly is God made flesh, 
then we'd actually expect everyone made in God's image, no matter how diverse their opinions, to find something in him that actually resonates with their very being. One writer, I I tried to find the original post, but I'll try to quote it from memory, uh, basically said that if, if our Jesus couldn't at some point be construed for each of these different views or be desired by those who hold it, it's probably not the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus was, rightly or wrongly, construed in all of these different ways, at, at least from a distance. You see, from a distance, right now I can recognize you, but if, you got, if I take off my glasses and I move away, any of you could be confused for just about anybody else in this room. My vision really is that bad without the glasses. Pray for my vision. Thank you. Um, and yet, perhaps the problem that both Jesus' contemporaries and we today have is, is just that same problem. We're actually trying to recognize Jesus from a distance, from the outside looking in. And uh, we actually get a solution from two seminary professors, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon, who say that we just simply can't know Jesus without following Jesus. You can't really do that from a distance. We get another perspective in here. We get the perspective of his followers, those that have a front row seat to his life and ministry for three years. How do they answer the question? What's the insider perspective on Jesus? Well, as we look in verse 15, we see the answer. Jesus asks the question, and and Peter responds on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ, the, the son of the living God. You're not just another prophet, like all these other people talk about. You're actually the one that these prophets were speaking about, like... You're really the king of the Jews. You're, you're really the long-awaited Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ, King David's greater son, the one who's going to make all things right, the one who's going to gather all people to yourselves. It's you. And Jesus, giving his disciples a pop quiz, Peter speaks up and he nails it. The perfect Sunday school answer, the core of the Christian creed for 2,000 years. But there's one question Jesus doesn't ask here. He doesn't ask, so Peter, what do you think that actually means? What do you think it means for me to be the Christ? But he doesn't have to, because in a few verses, Jesus uh, is about to hear from Peter his own view, crystal clear. In verse 21, Jesus begins to elaborate on what it means to be the Christ. And, and Peter, just like he had been thinking, oh, the Christ, this conquering king, someone who's going to overthrow the Romans, you know, just, just like, you know, the other kings did. But then Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying. And Peter had to be thinking, okay, how's a dead Messiah going to overthrow the Romans? So in verse 22, Peter has the audacity to pull Jesus aside and tell him what's what, saying, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And the more that I read this, the more that I'm, I'm taken back to a conversation from the movie The Princess Bride, and just kind of like imagining those voices in this situation. It's a conversation between the Zini and Inigo, and I somehow, Inigo Montoya, and somehow I hear it in this. It's like Peter is saying, the Christ has to die? Inconceivable! <laughs> to which Jesus, who just heard Peter call him the Christ, would reply, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And as funny as that is, unfortunately for Peter, Jesus' actual response is this. Get behind me, Satan. That's not a word that Jesus uses lightly. And in all of Scripture, the only times that we see Jesus using that word and not referring to Satan himself is 
Well, it actually never happens except here. Only now, when Peter pushes back against Jesus' teaching about what it means for himself to be the Christ. Why such a strong pushback? Why does Jesus make such a big deal about what it means for him to be the Christ? I saw a picture of, of maybe why when I was reading about a, uh, an accident that happened in 2006 involving uh, nine students and staff from Taylor University who were in a collision with a semi. And as you can probably imagine, it didn't end well. Of the nine passengers on board, only four survived. The night of that accident, one girl's parents, I think we have a picture of, of actually uh, them on the screen. If so, um, on the left, One girl's parents got the news that their daughter, Whitney Sirak, had died. While another girl's parents were told that their daughter, Laura Ryan, that's the the girl on the right there, uh, had survived, but she was in critical condition in the hospital and they needed to come see her right away. What followed was predictable. The appropriate response. One couple mourned the death of their daughter, while another couple kept vigil by the bedside of their daughter, hoping for her to wake up from her coma. And five weeks later, she did. She began to open her eyes and began to speak. But when she did, something just didn't seem right. You see, it was understandable how a girl with severe head trauma uh, who might have a hard time recognizing her own family and and might even call them the wrong name sometime, uh, especially after sustaining head injuries that were so severe that before coming in, her parents were told, you may not recognize her in her current state. Soon, the Van Ryn family realized what had happened. This wasn't their daughter, Laura. It was Whitney. You see, the night of the accident, amidst all the chaos of the strewn wreckage, strewn bodies, a mistake was made in their attempt to identify the two blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls at the scene, leading them to leave the deceased girl, believe that the deceased girl was actually Whitney, and that the girl sent to the hospital was Laura, As a result, the surviving daughter's family had been mourning in Michigan, not knowing that their daughter was alive in an Indiana hospital. Meanwhile, another family was keeping vigil by the bedside of a woman they'd never met, clinging to a false hope, not knowing that their daughter had already been laid in the grave. All because one person, the coroner, mistook the identity of the one before them. The mistaken identity leads to the wrong response of the one before us. And it's no less significant when the one before us is Jesus. You see, identity matters. When Peter gets it right, calling Jesus the Christ, Jesus calls him in his confession a rock, a petra, a firm foundation. But when Peter has in mind what Jesus calls the things of men rather than the things of God, He inserts his own idea into what that actually means and openly opposes Jesus. In Jesus' word, this rock has become a stumbling stone, a scandal on, an obstacle, a hindrance to Jesus. See, what Jesus is saying is that if we trip up on his identity, on who he is and actually what that means, we'll actually find ourselves quite likely working against him no less than Satan himself, even while we're certain that we're on his side. You see, Peter got it right But he also got it wrong. He had the right words, but the wrong meaning. And the same thing can happen for us today. We can ace our theology exams and totally miss what it means. This week I was um, reading about two brothers 
who grew up in England in the 18, 18th century, uh, John and Charles Wesley, uh, founders of what today would uh, be the Wesleyan and Methodist churches. Both of them followed in their father's footsteps growing up in a pastor's home, but then they went further than that. Uh, by their 20s, they had already become leaders in an Oxford prayer group, Oxford, pretty big time, uh, where they were actually focusing on not only studying the scriptures, but trying to live a holy life together. By their 30s, they had already been ordained in the Church of England and had years of experience in Christian ministry. They both preached, they both taught, uh, they both wrote, and they both composed hymns, even gave themselves to missionary work, which made what happened in May of, of 1738 so shocking. Something happened that neither of them expected. They were converted. Not from Christianity to something else, but actually converted to Christianity from what John Wesley described as a fair summer religion that he thought was Christianity. It happened centuries ago, and and it it even happens today. I I had conversations with people who would say they grew up in the church, they were going to Christian schools, they knew all the camp songs, they had all the right answers, all the good Sunday school questions, they knew all the terminology, but would say only in the last years they actually learned what it all meant. They actually believed for the first time. And if you'd asked them, if you'd asked John and Charles Wesley, is Jesus the Christ? They'd say, well, of course he is, yes. But just like Peter, to know that Jesus is the Christ is not the same thing as actually knowing what that meant. That's why in verse 20, Jesus says, don't tell anybody yet. Hold off. Yes, I'm the Christ, but wait. Because if you've been following me for all these years and you misunderstand what that means, how much so the ones that you would speak to? Hold off for a while. You see, at this point, perhaps the only one who really understood what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ is probably Jesus himself. What happens when he weighs in? What's the Jesus perspective on his identity? How does he see things? Uh, I found Dan Doriani very helpful in describing this when he told a story uh, about going to a basketball game with his daughter. Many of you have, have met or heard of Dan Doriani. Maybe you were a student of his and you met him as Dr. Doriani. And, you know, his kids growing up with him being a professor heard their dad referred to as Dr. Doriani a lot. And so one day they're at a basketball game, uh, him and one of his daughters, and something happens. Somebody in the crowd starts showing signs of a heart attack. And so, of course, they cry out, is there a doctor in the house? So one of his daughters very says, my daddy's a doctor. And then as people start approaching him one by one and turning away, you're like, what's going on here? And the conversation goes something like this. Well, yes, I'm a doctor. Not, just not that kind of doctor. And essentially what Jesus is saying here is, yes, Peter, I am the Christ. Yes, I'm the Mashiach. I am the Messiah. But, but, but no, Peter, not, not that kind of Messiah. You see, if you come to Jesus thinking that he'll fit into your categories, eventually as you get to know him, Something just doesn't fit. And you have a choice. You could reject Jesus. You could redefine him, or you could let him actually redefine things for you. And if we're actually going to do Jesus the honor of letting him do that for us, what does Jesus mean by the Christ? Yes, a king, the long-awaited king. He, uh, he affirms the same thing later in his ministry, but a very different kind of king. And you've got to realize how people understood kings in those days. Uh, kings for the Israelites were those who would fight your battles on your behalf to deliver you from your enemies. That's primarily what you would look to a king for. That's what people wanted when they got their first king. But as anybody who's been in the military will tell you, 
The most dangerous enemy is not the enemy in front of you, but the enemy that you overlook, the enemy you don't even see. And in their days, their eyes were focused straightly on the enemy in front of them, the Romans, the occupying force, the enemy out there, not what Chris Lungard would call the enemy within, the true enemy that the Christ must overcome. You see, uh, not simply liberating God's people from the Romans, but from their bond to something deeper, something that would actually follow them far beyond any Roman occupation, something within something that they notice they take with them everywhere, their own issues, their own pride, their own selfishness, the things within them that lead them to be oppressors in their own way, their own sin. You see, if we think about it, all of us have a sense about how we know we should be treated, and yet if we're honest, we don't always treat each other the same way. Or to put it in other ways, all of us have an idea on how other drivers should drive which doesn't always compute when we get behind the wheel. Something else drives us, you might say. Something else takes hold. Something else compels us. Something else controls us. It's what Jesus uh, is referring to. It's the enemy within. It's what the Bible calls uh, sin. And it's actually what leads to the way that we mistreat others, the way that we commit crimes against God, and actually what led the Romans to mistreat those that they occupied. You see, as a result... We don't even live by our own standards, if we're honest, let alone God's. And yet Jesus goes on to say, yeah, that's not the only problem that you have here. You see, we don't just have a sin problem. In verse 18, Jesus starts talking about what you might call our death problem. He says it in verse 18 when he starts talking about the gates of Hades. In those days, if you hear the word Hades, you understand that as the term for the realm of the dead, the realm of death. And actually, that's the enemy that Jesus wants to put in focus for them. And when we don't actually have a sin problem, or a death problem unless we first have a sin problem because the wages of sin is death, not just the loss of physical life, but spiritual life, alienation uh, from God. And yet the only way to completely avoid the penalty of something is to completely avoid it itself. The only way to completely avoid the penalty of sin is to completely avoid sin. So, well, good luck with that. And yet there's lots of religious systems that will essentially tell you this is a battle that you can win on your own. You don't need someone to do that for you. You just need an eightfold plan, five pillars, ten commandments, something to tell you how to be your own savior. And yet all of them ultimately underestimate the problem in front of you and therefore underestimate what your greatest need actually is. You see, if your greatest problem is ignorance, then, then really what you just need is a good teacher or a good example to follow. If it's really a lack of, of exhortation to live rightly, just more fire and more brimstone, then really you just need another prophet. If the problem is, is motivation, as many who consider themselves spiritual but not religious would say, uh, then you just need a motivational speaker to help you live your, your best life now. But what if our problem is that we actually can't be our own savior? Having all of these things still wouldn't solve the problem of, of sin, the enemy within, the problem of our alienation with God that it creates, and the problem of alienation between each other that it creates. What if we actually need someone to do something on our behalf that we can't do ourselves. When we refer to one person doing that for the other, we call it having a Messiah complex, trying to be their Savior. And yet for Jesus to be the Christ, to be the king that delivers his people from their greatest enemies, going before them to do that, he'd actually have to deal with our greatest enemies, our sin and the death that comes with it. And in verse 18, Jesus says this, 
the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. See, the gates of death couldn't hold Jesus. And because of that, they will not be the last word for his people, those who have been united to him by faith. See, in love, God actually sent Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, live a perfect sin-free life where he always did what pleased the Father and yet doing it on behalf of his people. And then going to the cross and dying for not only his own sin, but the sins of his people, doing so on behalf of his people. See, that's the part of being the Christ that Peter uh, just couldn't accept at first, but it's the part that we actually need the most, that he needed the most. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, but a different kind of Christ. One who suffers and dies, but also rises from the grave. Uh, One who was also divine. As Jesus claims in John chapter 10, because only one who was truly divine and perfectly holy could actually perfectly fulfill God's holy law, always doing the right thing in the right way with the right motive. Their answer to Jesus' identity, which we hear plenty of, ultimately underestimate our problem. You see, what we need is not just another good teacher or a, or a good pep talk or, or a good example, not just a prophet, but one that the prophets actually pointed to, not just a physical healer, but one who also heals broken hearts and broken relationships and can actually heal the broken relationship between us and God, not one that can be confined by any modern social or political movement, one who actually embodies the best of what they're actually aspiring to create, and not an add-on to any religious system, but the one who does what religion promises but can never actually achieve. See, if Jesus is the Christ, meaning by that what Jesus meant by that, then what I need is to trust in him, to believe in him, not in myself, to be about what he's building and not looking for him to simply be about what I'm building, because in verse 18, That's what Jesus says he's doing. He says, I will build my church. See, Jesus is not only the Christ. He says he's the builder. And he builds his church on his people's confession of himself. Which means Jesus is also saying something about the identity of his followers. That they, that we, are actually the means that he uses to build his church as we proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Not doing so through, through polished people that have it all together, but through flawed people, just like Peter. Not because we don't have weaknesses and failings, but in spite of our weaknesses and failings. If you look in verse 17, Jesus says something that maybe we don't quite get until we look closer. Uh, he says, blessed are you. Like, you got it right. Good job. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. Literally, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my Father in heaven. Here's why that's significant. Uh, Jesus never, ever refers to Peter in any other context in Scripture as son of Jonah. Because here he's trying to contrast his natural father with his heavenly father. Yeah, I know you grew up, you know, hearing about God and reading the Scriptures, but this, this bold declaration, this rock that you've just proclaimed, it's not just because your daddy said that's what we believe. It's not because this is an inherited tradition. In fact, this isn't because of your own flesh and blood. Peter, it's, you didn't say this because you're just smarter than other people. You didn't say it because you're more spiritual or more disciplined than other people. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, it might actually be very much the opposite. Peter's story is full of examples of his weaknesses and failings. There was a time when uh, Peter found himself uh, fearful of how people would perceive him. And so what he did is he stopped eating with people that weren't Jewish. 
creating offenses to those around him, showing uh, racism to those around him, and actually had to be called to the carpet by Paul, somebody that a few years prior actually went to Peter to try to learn from him. Peter very boldly declared, if everybody else turns their back on you, I will never. And then that same night denies him three times. Jesus hears Peter boldly declare, you are the Christ. And then right after that, uh, Peter's rebuking Jesus, saying, you actually don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And gets compared to Satan. Tremendous glory followed by failure. Two steps forward, one step back. And almost always issues with his mouth. I swear, Peter put his foot in his mouth so often, his high school yearbook would have read, most likely to choke on his own toes. You would have put that in his book if you knew him. And yet in spite of that, Jesus uses his very point of weakness, his tongue. And at his very sermon, his very first sermon, 3,000 people become followers of Christ. Jesus working through his very point of weakness to bring himself glory, to bring people to himself. And as Paul and the other apostles go about proclaiming the exact same message, Jesus is the Christ, meaning what Jesus meant by that, uh, thousands of people get liberated from trying to be their own saviors. Some of you have noticed in verse 19, Jesus using some of these kind of weird terms we're not quite sure. Some of these we're actually going to deal with in a sermon a few weeks from now. But in verse 19, Jesus uses this terminology about the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. What do we use keys for? Well, for doors. You, you use them to, to unlock doors and open them, and you use them to, to close them and to lock them behind you. And as this gospel is proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, doors are flung open for people to come into the kingdom of God, to come to know a Christ in a new way. And yet it was going to be proclaimed through ordinary flawed people, just like Peter, just like you, just like me, just like a guy named Nate Larkin. Larkin is the author of a book some of you may have heard of, uh, Samson and the Pirate Monks, easily one of the most interesting titles I've ever heard. He came to St. Louis a few years ago to actually tell his story, the story behind the book and his life. For years, he had struggled with an addiction uh, to pornography. When he finally got the nerve to confess it to his wife, she didn't take it well. And in fact, when he saw how much it hurt her, every single time he had to come back and confess that sin, his solution was, well, I just don't want to hurt my wife anymore, so I'm just going to stop telling her. I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm going to white-knuckle it. And things didn't get better. In fact, with time, they actually got worse. You've heard here before, Greg mentioned a a story that that Larkin told. He was on his way to a Christmas Eve candlelight service uh, where he picked up his first hooker, paying with the money that he had meant to put in the offering plate. It was the first time anything like that had ever happened, but it wouldn't be the last. For years, he had struggled with this. Meanwhile, he was leading a church a pastor of a church in South Florida uh, where he was leading them in a very unhealthy direction because he couldn't be open and honest about his sin. How could his congregation do the same? So after three years of leading this, this double life, he saw no hope and change, and so he basically stepped away from the ministry, being afraid that eventually he would be caught and it would bring shame not only to him but to the church. So he went into business, He was really good at business. He actually made a lot of money 
which turned out to be his downfall because now he had almost unlimited resources to pursue his addiction. He was asked by somebody years later to estimate the cost, and he said, I figured that over 20 years, uh, he'd spent $300,000 on pornography and prostitutes. It was following a move from Florida to a Tennessee that things actually started looking better. Uh, the old issues weren't coming up as much, and he was experiencing what he thought was a newfound freedom. He actually could overcome this on his own. And then the inevitable happened. He relapsed. And he was caught in the act by his wife. It wasn't long after when his wife told him, I don't think you can ever change. So far, the more he thought he could change by sheer willpower, the more things not only stayed the same, but actually the worse they got. So by now, he knew there was no denying his brokenness. He began attending a a 12-step group where he heard people talking about sin in a way that he says he'd never heard it before. He'd always heard people talk about their sin in the past tense, what they used to be like, but this was the first time he actually heard Christians talking about their sin in the present tense, which started getting him thinking, rethinking, what does it actually mean to be a follower of Christ? See, despite all of his pastoral training and all of his education, he said, quote, I never heard Jesus like I heard him in that room. And as he began to experience the freedom of not trying to be his own savior through covering, lying, and hiding, he actually began to be freed from his patterns of addiction. It was two steps forward, one step back. It wasn't immediate, but a process had begun led to a new place of freedom. What happened in his life was the same thing that happened in Peter's life. God met him at his greatest point of weakness because that was the point where he was most ready to receive Jesus as the Christ. From experiences, he launched what today is called the Samson Society, which has uh, multiple chapters, even chapters here in St. Louis, so that others could uh, not have to go it alone and actually, uh, if they've been trying to go it alone, trying to be their own savior, they could actually experience the same type of transforming community that he had. But it's a community that Jesus had been talking about for 2,000 years, what he simply calls my church. Jesus comes to us as the Christ the one who does for his people what they simply can't do for themselves, who builds his church on the proclamation of himself and invites broken, messy, imperfect, weak people to not only be the ones who proclaim him, but as we heard earlier, to be built into a foundation, into a structure, into a home, into a temple, a community that's being set free, which Jesus simply calls the body of Christ. He simply calls my church. May the same be true of us here in this place today. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for uh, 